There was a father who had a son, and he loved his son. He would bestow good gifts on his son, and this son grew up uh, receiving not just the good gifts of his father, but the affection of his father. But the son's heart was wicked, and as he grew, um, he decided that he did not want to be under his father's care anymore. In fact, he cared nothing for his father and wished his father dead. So he asked for his father's inheritance early and left his home to squander the inheritance on what he thought would bring pleasure to him and would bring fulfillment to him. Of course, we know the beginning of that story, um, the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son, and we'll finish it later this evening. But I wanted to begin there because really that's all of our story. And so often we do not see our sin in that light. Jeremiah 2 will help us here. We tend to not think about sin, and we, and we tend to not see our sin as a personal offense and attack on the goodness of God. Because of this, we do not see our sin as bitter, and so we do not see Christ as sweet as we should. Because of this, uh, this flawed view of sin, we cheapen God's grace, and we lack heartfelt worship out of gratitude to God. My goal tonight through this text, and it's a difficult text, I'm going to warn you up front, it's not an easy text. My goal is that as a, as a church, Christ would become sweeter as we see the bitterness of our sin and what he did to pay for it. So if you're in Jeremiah 2, We're going to start in verse 4. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and my heritage and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that did not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children will I contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. 
For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We see a, a personal response from God here that you don't see everywhere in Scripture. God is responding in a personal way to the sins of his people. And I think here in this text, I think you can break it down into, into really four sections. Verses 4 and 5, you see the perfections of Yahweh slandered. Verse 6, you see the deliverance of Yahweh forgotten. Verses 7 and 8, you see the, prov- the provision of Yahweh abused. And verses 9 through 13, you see the glory of Yahweh exchanged. Once again, I, I hope that through this text tonight, as we see the bitterness of our sin, the sin of Israel that translates to us so easily, that Christ would become sweet. We would worship him in gratitude. So a little bit of background on Jeremiah, um, which you find uh, very readily in, in chapter 1. So he's a priest um, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was called to be a prophet during uh, the good king Josiah's reign, but would eventually be deported to Babylon. Um, you remember that Babylon captured Jerusalem took some of the inhabitants away. Jeremiah was one of those that were taken away. But most importantly for our text tonight, he spoke for Yahweh, the covenant God. Look at verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. If you look in your Bibles, uh, as we've noted before, Lord is in all caps, helps us know that Jeremiah here is using the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. It's repeated twice in this verse. And in Hebrew, when you repeat something, it's just for emphasis. He is speaking the words of the Lord. And this isn't a a new God to Israel. It's not a distant God. It's their God. Their covenant God who is speaking to them. And Fisherville, our covenant God, who is speaking to us tonight. So here in in verse 5, you see the perfections of Yahweh slandered. God asks the question, what wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. He's first addressing their ancestors. He's not actually addressing them here. He's he's reminding them of what their fathers did. Again, the history of Yahweh with his people. And what uh, the answer to the question he poses is obvious. There was no wrong. Yahweh is perfect. He's eternally perfect. He's perfectly holy, perfectly good, perfectly just. What wrong did your fathers find in me? They did not find any wrong in him. The the wrong was not with him. It was with them. They went far from him. 
you know, we like in the Baptist church, we like to use the phrase backslidden or, you know, went off the path for a little while. That is not what was happening here. They turned away from him and ran the other direction. They went far from him. And you see that when you, when you read the history of Israel. You see it as early as they, they're redeemed out of Egypt, Mount Sinai, and they run to a golden calf. They inherit a new land. They run to the gods that are already in the land and around the land. They keep running away from him. And it's far from him. And what did they run to? They ran from him, went far from him, and went after worthlessness. And so they became worthless. We never just step away from God or walk away from God. We always walk to something else. Our, in our hearts, as Brian has often said, we, we are hardwired for worship. And if we're not worshiping the one true God, we are worshiping something else. And compared to the one true God who is worthy, full of worth, everything else becomes worthless. And notice that they went after worthlessness and became worthless. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. If you worship leisure, you will be lazy. If you worship yourself, you will be selfish. If you worship pleasure, you will be a hedonist, just seeking pleasure everywhere you can get it. If you worship sex, you will be an adulterer, even if it's just in your heart. If you worship money, you will either be a shopaholic or stingy. If you worship food, you will be a glutton. If you worship what is worthless, you will become worthless. We become like what we worship. On the flip side, if we're worshiping the one true God, we become like him as we behold the face of God in Jesus Christ, or God in the face of Jesus Christ, we're transformed from one glory to another. We become more like Christ, more like God, as we worship him. But that is not what they did here. So what do I mean when I say that this is slandering the perfections of God? Years ago, Emily and I were sitting at a at a restaurant, and from where I was seated, I could see several tables ahead of me. We were enjoying our meal, but at one point during the meal, I noticed that a waiter was called over to a table, and I couldn't hear what was going on, but I noticed that the person at the table gave the waiter a plate of food that was full. Again, I couldn't hear what was going on at the table, but I did not have to hear to know what was happening. There was something wrong with the plate of food. It wasn't to their liking. Something was wrong with it, and so they were rejecting it, asking for something else. Brothers and sisters, when we turn from God to worship something else, and, and as was, was even said this morning, this isn't carved idols set up in your living room. Anything that we love 
more than God. Anything that we devote our time to, if it's not in submission to him, you could call an idol. You're worshiping something else. And when you do that, you're saying with your actions, with your words, with your life, that there is something wrong with God. You're slandering his perfection. When you worship anything or anyone other than the one true God, you're declaring that there is something wrong with him. God's not a God of comfort, so I will look for it in a relationship or in food. The Lord can't be trusted, so I'll take the future into my own hands through anxiety and fear. The Lord will not provide, so I must build my bank account higher just in case. There is no lasting joy and pleasure in the Lord, so I will look for it in entertainment or pornography. The list goes on and on. When we sin, we are slandering the name of God. So what are we saying with our life? What are we saying about God? Are we telling the truth about him, that he is perfect, that in him is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore, that he is the fountain of living water, the only source of satisfaction for our souls? I encourage you to ask that question this morning or this evening of yourself. What are you saying about the Lord with your life? The Lord then goes from a question to an accusation. Look in verse 6. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no one dwells. This is the provision of the Lord, of Yahweh, forgotten. If you can remember what the Lord did to bring Israel out of Egypt. There was a little baby that was put in a basket on the Nile River that survived. That was the hand of the Lord. And just happened, right, the providence of God, that the daughter of Pharaoh saw him there and took him out, and he grew up in Pharaoh's house. But he began to see the affliction of his people. And the Lord brought him out of Egypt for a time. And then on Mount Sinai, through a burning bush, called him back to go redeem the people. He raised up Moses. Then the Lord sent the plague, literally moving heaven and earth to redeem Israel out of Egypt. And then finally, as you think about just this, this exodus out of Egypt, is the people of Israel standing at the banks of a river that they cannot cross and survive with an army coming that they cannot meet and survive. And the Lord miraculously opens a way that they can cross through on dry land to the other side. Of course, the waters come back and their enemy is defeated. But they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out up from the land of Egypt? But if you can remember, they did respond up front with praise. The song of Moses, right after they crossed the Red Sea, they're rejoicing, they're thanking the Lord. But it does not take long for us to forget. Not only did he bring them out of Egypt, 
He led them in the wilderness. He led them through a cloud and a pillar of fire. He was the only reason they survived in the wilderness. They would have died there if it weren't for him. From lack of water, he miraculously provided water. Lack of food, he miraculously provided food. He took care of them. No man dwelled there, as the passage says, where no man dwells, because no man could dwell there. The Lord brought them through. But they forgot him. He was the only reason why they were out of Egypt. He was the only reason why they did not die in the desert. He was their identity as a people, and they forgot him. You know, when we were walking through um, the trial before Sage was born, we were constantly on our faces before the Lord, pleading with him that he would spare her life. We, we drew together, Emily and I did, and we drew closer to the Lord. We could just ask him that he would be able to let that cup pass from us. And immediately afterwards, you can imagine just the overwhelming joy, the overwhelming sense of gratitude in our hearts. But as the weeks went by, we started to realize that the dependence on God and the acknowledgement of him that was there before Sage was born and immediately after was starting to go away. We had gone, started to go down the path of forgetting what he had done. I praise God that he had corrected us and we were able to repent of that and um, turn back uh, to, to him, acknowledge our dependence on him. But we do this so quickly. We, we can't just pass judgment on, on Israel. We do this so quickly. So I want to ask is, how are you remembering the Lord and what he has done, the deliverances he's brought in your life, primarily in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but even the small things. Are you thanking him for them? Are there things in your life that you have put in place to help you remember? Um, there are a, a lot of ways to do this, and you'll have to find what works for you and your family, but they need to be there. There needs to be things put in place so that you can remember what the Lord has done and thank you for him, because we are prone to forget. And how ungrateful we forget the provision of the Lord. The accusation continues, if you look in verse 7. 7 and 8, this is the provision of the Lord abused, split into two parts. So we'll start here in verse 7. He says, And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Here you see the goodness of God. He's, he's bringing them into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. And this is the heart of our Father. He loves giving good gifts to his children. We see that all through Scripture. We see from James that he is, he's, uh, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is the character of God. He loves to give, and he loves to see his children enjoy the good things that he's given. 
And he did this for, for Israel. But if you notice, even just in the beginning of this verse, the plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, it reminds you of another land in Scripture that had plentiful fruit and good things. It reminds you, it should bring our minds back to the Garden of Eden where God filled it with good things for Adam and Eve to enjoy. But we sin, and we keep sinning, and we keep sinning. Adam sinned in the garden. He abused the good gifts of God. The people of Israel abused the good gifts of God. They came into the good land, and they defiled it. They took, they, they took the good things that God had given them, and instead of using them and thanking him for them, they started worshiping other gods with the land. And notice, it's not their land. Halfway through verse 7, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. We are all only always, or always only, stewards of the good things God gives. They're never ours. All of the good gifts are the Lord's. We're to enjoy them before him in a way that pleases him and glorifies him, and, and we're to respond with the good things that we have in gratitude to him. And he's pleased with that. He loves giving good gifts, as we've said before. If you remember in Romans 1, 24 and 25. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is what the people of Israel did when they came into the land took the good gifts that God gave and they started to worship them instead of him. And we do this all the time. We take the good gifts that God gives, abuse them, worship the creator rather, the creature rather than the creator. We take the good gift of work and find our identity in it, working too much and ignoring the other needs in our, in our lives specifically, and I think usually our families. We take the good gift of rest and abuse it and become lazy. We take the good gift of sex, which glorifies the Lord in its proper context between one man and one woman in marriage. We try to find our ultimate pleasure in it, and that leads to all sorts of awful perversions. We take the good gift of food and find our comfort in it, leading to gluttony. And the list goes on. And where is the giver in it? He's forgotten. He's not worshipped. And the good gifts are abused. Are you starting to see it? He is good. He's perfect. He's all-sufficient. And we consistently, like Israel, forget him slander him and abuse what he's given us. The second way that the Lord provided for them 
verse, see this in verse 8, is he provided priests, those who handle the law, shepherds, prophets, provided all these things to the people so that they would not stray. The priests were those who conducted the worship of Israel, but they did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law and, and would copy it, would study it, would meditate on it, as we see in the Psalms, they did not know the Lord. The shepherds, and here this isn't talking about those who actually tend sheep. This word is also often used to describe rulers, those who are the rulers of Israel. They did not lead in obedience as they were to do, but they transgressed against the Lord. And the prophets who were to speak the word of God, as Jeremiah is now faithfully doing, prophesied by Baal, a false god, and went after things that do not profit. That phrase pops up again a little later. There's a couple ways that, that we can respond to this verse specifically, and I want to first address those that we're blessed to have in our church who are in ministry, training for ministry, whose job it is to handle the word of God. This is a, this is a warning to us. It is possible to handle the word of God and not know him, to be building a different kingdom for yourself. Brothers, take up the word of God and get to know him. Otherwise, we will be leading the people down a path of sin and wickedness and abusing the good gift. But also, I'd, I want to speak to, I think, everyone in, in this room who has any sort of leadership, um, mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers, maybe it's in your workplace, are you leading out in obedience to the Lord? Are you setting an example to those who follow you and who look up to you of obedience? Or are you leading in transgression against the Lord? Of course, we all know that there are times when we do lead out in trans transgression and we need to repent. There is forgiveness of the Lord, as we will see. Here comes one of the biggest transitions in this passage in verse 9. He goes from addressing what had happened in Israel to then addressing those who he's actually speaking to in that moment. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. So he has been talking about the ancestors, the fathers, what they had done. Transitions now, therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. Because our pattern does not stop. We continue to rebel and continue to sin as they did. He says, cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory to that which does not profit. There's that phrase again. So here, 
he's appealing to, to pagan nations. These were, these were peoples who were to the east and the west of Israel. So he's essentially saying, look around. Look around you and tell me, has there been such a thing as you have done? Has a nation changed its God? Then he adds the caveat, even though they are no gods. The implied answer is no. Even the pagan nations are devoted to their gods, even though they're not alive. They're false gods. They do not profit. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And what's implied here? If they're changing from his glory to that which does not profit, the implication is that his glory profits. And we know that to be true. When God is glorified among a people, they benefit from it. That's what we were made for. We were made to give glory to the Lord. It satisfies our souls. But they change their glory for that which does not profit. And if he can't appeal to the nations who are pagan and in disobedience to the Lord, and he can't appeal to his own people, who is he going to call as a witness for the condemnation against Israel? He turns to creation. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. The heavens do exactly as God has, had, has commanded. Develop clouds and, and rain and clear out, let the sun shine. They're standing in judgment against God's people. Be appalled, be shocked, be utterly desolate. This is shocking because God is so good and everything else does not profit. For my people have committed two evils. Kind of in summary of what he's been saying. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. And these are evil. You know, springs of water were rare in that climate. And they were protected when you found one. A spring coming out of the ground just constantly flowing with fresh water was a gift. There were whole cities built around those springs of water that sustained them. Elsewhere you would have these cisterns that tried to collect rain and sustain life that way. But notice that even the cisterns that we hewn out for ourselves are broken and they cannot hold water. That is the worship of a false god. So he's kind of circling back to his first question. What wrong did your, fa- did your fathers find in me? They found no wrong. I am the fountain of living water. I am the one who satisfies the souls of my people. I am the one who sustains their life for th- giving them good things to enjoy. As Jesus would then say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
But again, this is our story too. We turn from the fountain of living water, our God, to these other things, these broken systems. And we find no satisfaction there. Psalm 16 says that the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. That is true. When we try to dig these cisterns for ourselves, as we look to other things to do what only God can do, our sorrows grow, and their sorrows grew. That's very clear from this passage. So in our sin, we slander the perfection of God, we forget his, provision, his protection, we abuse his provision, we exchange his glory for that which does not profit. Do you see the wickedness of it? Because you have to ask why, right? You have to ask, why do we do this? If God is, is who he says he is, if he's really so good, why do we exchange him? There's something wrong with us. We hate God in our, in our flesh. We don't want to be under his authority. We would, we would rather try to dig these cisterns for ourselves than, than joyfully submit to him and be under his rule and reign. We have forsaken him. But against that backdrop, and we, and we also know that this is not the end of the story, no matter how many times his people do this, and how, no matter how many times we do this, no matter how many times we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And if you fast forward, there would come a man who would not forsake the fountain of living water. He would be the only one, but would love his father would use the good gifts that God gave him to glorify his name. He would remember the provision of God and the deliverance that God gives. And he would worship his father, glory in him. But he would die a shameful death. And if you remember on the cross, he uttered the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So for those who forsook the Father, he was forsaken. For those who just used the goodness of God for things that do not bring him glory, he was put to shame. This is good news for us, brothers and sisters. This is the sweetness of Christ. When we see the bitterness of our sin, we see the sweetness of the one who took it for us. And he made a way for us to be made right with God. So now, as believers, if you are in Christ, you can return to the fountain of living water. You can worship him and receive 
the joy forevermore that's at his right hand. You can know him. You can come back from your wandering, from your squandering of his inheritance. Come back to the Father and know his sweet embrace. Let's pray. Lord, you are the fountain of living water, and we are satisfied in your presence. But how quickly do we run from you after that which does not profit? Lord, forgive us. And we thank you that we can be forgiven, that because of the work of Christ being forsaken for us, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just not to judge us, but to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I want to pray for Fisherville. I want to pray for myself here as well. Pray that we would not take sin lightly. That we would see the offense that it is against your goodness, the slandering of your name. Pray that we would run to the cross of Christ seek forgiveness and repent and turn back to the fountain of living water and drink deeply and find joy, satisfaction, rest for our souls. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.